Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cast your mind back, dear listener, to the misted past of three weeks ago. We left the fight for New Guinea delicately poised after the Battle of Isurava. The gallant 39th Militia Battalion is a spent force after shouldering the load of the first major battles of the Kokoda campaign and holding on until the 2nd 14th Battalion of the Australian Imperial Force arrived to shore up the defences at Isurava. The 2nd 16th Battalion went forward along a minor track to the east of the main fighting to counter a flanking movement by the Japanese aimed at reaching Alola and completely encircling the Australian forces. Both sides have taken heavy casualties, but the Japanese could better afford them. They now hold a vital position on the northern flank from which they can enfilade the entire defence. The 2nd 14th, with the remnants of the 39th, have no choice but to abandon Isurava over the night of the 29th and 30th of August and head back to the Isurava Rest House, about halfway between Isurava and the Australian headquarters at Alola. On the 30th, the 2nd 16th launched their attack against the flanking movement, working on the theory that the hapless 53rd Militia Battalion would join them. They didn't, and despite hard fighting, the 2nd 16th couldn't dislodge the Japanese. They did, however, hold them up and put an end to the possibility of outflanking the Australian position. From the Japanese perspective, they had captured Isurava, so technically it was a victory, but the four days it took to seize the position put them even further behind in their schedule to reach Port Moresby. The entire crossing of the Owen Stanley Range was supposed to take ten days. They fought the first battle of Kokoda on the 28th of July. It was now the 30th of August. Instead of 10 days, it was now 4 weeks, and they hadn't even covered half the distance. For both sides, the campaign had reached a critical stage. There was nothing else for it but to roll the dice and let the fates determine the outcome. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. A couple of things before we kick off. Firstly, a big thank you to Schnuglu, and DWAC1 for the lovely comments on iTunes recently. Always fantastic to get a bit of feedback. It gets me right in the fields. And Schnuglu has requested an episode or three on Army Doctors, which is a fascinating suggestion, which will take some researching, I reckon. So it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. So thanks, guys. And secondly, to all the ADF men and women who are currently up to their epaulettes in mud helping out with the current flood emergency... I'd like to take this opportunity to say well done on your efforts thus far and for what will likely be an extended operation. There does appear to be a few Muppets on the anti-social media who like to hang shit on you guys to stake up their own egos and failing media and political careers. Please rest assured that those people wouldn't nail buses up them until the passengers started emerging from their asses, and 99% of the population of this country appreciates your efforts. Makes me proud that I once wore the same uniform as you. So now, time to get into this episode. With the position at Isurava now untenable, the order to withdraw was given. The 39th had done their bit, and then some, and there was now time for them to leave the battlefield, make their way back to Port Moresby, and recover. That left the 2nd 14th and the 2nd 16th still in the field to conduct the fighting withdrawal. A fighting withdrawal, when done properly, is a carefully choreographed dance of units falling back through other units who are providing cover. The 2nd 14th unit diary of this period gives an account of how it was achieved after Isurava. 
I won't read out the whole thing, but I'll pluck out the details that show the coordination. Quote, Eora Creek, 1st September. No contact was made earlier this morning. 2nd 16th Battalion moved into position immediately above the village, taking over both ours and the 39th position. Our unit moved back up to a position halfway between Eora Creek and Templeton's Crossing, where we stayed until approximately 1600 hours, when the battalion, less C Company, moved forward where they occupied a position around Brigade Headquarters. A Company, still on patrol, at 1700 hours, Brigade Headquarters issued orders for battalions to withdraw from Eora Creek. Eora Creek to Templeton's Crossing, 2nd of September. At 0600 hours, 2IC and guides joined Brigade Recce Party. 2nd 16th Battalion were to occupy positions midway between Eora Creek and Templeton's Crossing, while our recce party continued to Templeton's Crossing. By 0700 hours, the last elements of the 2nd 16th had passed through our positions. At 0830, the battalion's withdrawal commenced, reaching Templeton's Crossing at 1300, where they had, for the first time in seven days, a hot meal. A quiet night was spent. Templeton's Crossing to Myola, 3rd of September. At 08.30, the unit withdrew from Templin's Crossing in order of B Company, Battalion HQ, D Company, with C Company covering. At 7.30, a recce party of the 2nd 16th passed through our column. At 10.00, the unit was in position at and above the creek between Templin's Crossing and Myola. CO and main body of 2nd 16th Battalion reached our lines, having followed the higher ridge of the main track. At about 1.500, Lieutenant S.Y. Bissett and RSM Tipton and party of 11 reported back to battalion lines having come in on the tail of the 2nd 16th. By 1600, our unit's position was taken over by the 2nd 16th and our unit withdrew to Myola. End quote. So from that short extract, you get a rough idea of how the withdrawal was conducted. Obviously, the 2nd 14th had taken the hardest hits at Isurava, and so the majority of the rear guard was handled by the 2nd 16th. 2nd 14th would withdraw to a designated patch of ground and prop until the 2nd 16th came back and took over at which point the 2nd 14th would take the next step back. It all sounds nice and orderly, but as mentioned in the previous episode, throughout the process many small detachments became isolated and had to make their own way back through the jungle. The mention of Lieutenant Bassett and R.S. Tipton and their party reporting back in on the tail of the 2nd 16th is evidence of this. Even the 2nd 14th commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Keyes, was lost when he was captured and executed. It was during this phase that one of the more notable of the hundreds of personal tragedies occurred. Thomas Butch Bissett and his brother Stan Bissett were the two youngest of four brothers. Before the war, Stan had played rugby union for Victoria and was one of four Victorians selected for the 1939 Wallaby Tour of Great Britain. When war broke out, they both joined the 2nd 14th Battalion and fought throughout the Syrian campaign before being brought back to Australia and then to New Guinea. At the time of Isurava, Stan was a lieutenant and Butch a captain. Stan was the Lieutenant Bassett mentioned in the unit diary I quoted a moment ago. During the withdrawal from Isurava on the night of the 29th to 30th August at around 10pm, some of the walking wounded advised Stan that his brother was badly wounded and was being carried out of the line. He was taken to a spot on the side of the track just forward of Stan's position. Stan went to sit by Butch's side as the doc administered morphine. Butch slipped in and out of consciousness and during his lucid moments he and Stan would talk of home and family. Then, at around four in the morning, Butch succumbed to his wounds and died in his brother's arms. Stan didn't have time to grieve for his brother. He was a platoon lieutenant, and he was needed. He said a farewell to Butch and went back to the war. The 700 Australians of the 2nd 14th and 2nd 16th withdrew to a position just to the south of Alola, unaware that a fresh Japanese unit, 41st Regiment, was coming after them. 41st Regiment had 1,305 men who hadn't taken part in the fighting at Isurava, so was at full strength and confident of chasing down the rear guard. Under the command of Colonel Kiyomi Yazawa, 
They surged forward during the night of the 30th of August, but were unable to overtake the withdrawing troops. On the following morning, Yazawa saw the Australian troops gathering to the south of Alola and wrongly assumed they were digging in for another stand like Isirava. He felt the position was too strong to take on in a frontal assault, and so he sent his main force on a flanking move to attempt to encircle the Australian position and assault from the rear. But Brigadier Potts had no intention of making a stand. The position was totally unsuitable as a defensive location. As Yazawa was sending his men on a long circling movement, Potts pulled his troops back down the shorter track and escaped the Japanese again. So far, the Japanese had tried to encircle Marubra Force three times and had just missed on each attempt. Must have been a bit frustrating. With Lieutenant Colonel Keyes of the 2nd 14th now missing, 2nd 16th Commander Lieutenant Colonel Caro took control of the rear guard as the troops dug in on the heights to the south of Eora village. The line was held by 2nd 16th with the 2nd 14th in reserve to counter any flanking attempt. By now, the Australians had a fair handle on the Japanese method of attack. But having a handle on it and having the means to counter it were two very different things. The Australians were still heavily outnumbered and lacked support from artillery and mortars. The Japanese had no such shortage. They set up their artillery and a machine gun company on the same ridge on the north side of the village. They brought forward five companies of infantry to throw at the Australian position. One company would carry out a frontal attack, two would go around the flanks and the last two would be held in reserve. On the afternoon of 1st of September, the Japanese commenced the bombardment of the Australians, accompanied by a machine gun barrage. As the sun set, the infantry companies commenced their attacks and a night of confused fighting began. The defenders fought hard but was never a strong defensive position and by early morning on the 2nd of September, the Japanese had penetrated the position in several places. Caro ordered the withdrawal to Templeton's Crossing. On reaching the crossing, Caro decided they didn't have time to develop a proper defensive perimeter and so, before the pursuing Japanese could attack again, he pulled back across Eora Creek and set up position on the heights to the south of the crossing. The Japanese had only managed to bring forward one gun by this stage, but not wanting to give the Australians the chance to slip through their grip again, they attacked as soon as they could, again with a frontal attack to pin the Australians in place and a flanking movement. Once again, Caro held out for as long as possible before ordering another withdrawal. This withdrawal meant that the flat ground at Myola, which had been used for landing supplies, was lost. All resupply from a Rubra force would now have to be carried across the Owen Stanley Range. The Japanese, on the other hand, had the advantage of the airfield at Kokoda. With the position abandoned, the rear guard fell back to Afogi, where they rejoined the rest of the Marubra force. It may seem, on first glance, that after leaving Isirava, the Australians suffered one defeat after another. This was certainly the view of senior commanders, far from the battleground. But in actuality, it was a textbook rear guard action. It had never been the intention to stop the Japanese advance at Ayora village or Templeton's crossing. Neither site could be developed into a formidable fortified position in the time frame allowed. The rearguard intention was to merely slow the Japanese advance in order to give Marubra force more time to fortify the next defensible position at Afogi. The rearguard had inflicted 43 killed and 58 wounded on the Japanese for the loss of 21 killed and 54 wounded. But the number which mattered was the extra four days delay inflicted on the Japanese. It was a precious four days which Potts put to good use preparing the ground for the next stand. The decision to make a stand at Afogi was forced on Brigadier Potts by General Rao back in Port Moresby. The 3rd Battalion of the 21st Brigade, the 2nd 27th, had arrived and Rao felt that Potts must now have everything he needed to successfully halt the Japanese. Technically, the numbers involved at Afogi were about equal, but that discounts the Japanese units which weren't involved and were still held in reserve. In terms of the total numbers of troops on the tracks, the Australians were still outnumbered, 
and the Japanese had artillery and mortar support, which the Australians still didn't have. Rao felt that the numbers were OK, so he ordered Potts to dig in at Ifogi and make a stand. The site of the Battle of Ifogi, more commonly known as the Battle of Mission Ridge, or Brigade Hill, was chosen in the belief that it would nullify the usual Japanese tactic of sending out flanking attacks. The slopes on either side were extremely steep, and so it was felt their only option would be a frontal attack. The fresh 2nd 27th Battalion took up the front position, ready to take the brunt of the attack. Behind them to the south, on Mission Ridge, was the 2nd 14th and the 2nd 16th respectively, with Brigade Headquarters further back on Brigade Hill. Mission Ridge and Brigade Hill formed the two high points of a saddle feature. The Japanese attack commenced on the 7th of September. The 3rd Battalion, 144th Regiment, attacked the 2nd 27th position in a frontal assault. They had partial success and managed to envelop part of the battalion. But the greatest result of the Japanese 3rd Battalion's attack was that it distracted the Australians from the real threat that was about to hit them. They may have thought this position would nullify the flanking movement, but someone forgot to tell the Japanese. At dawn on the 8th of September, the Japanese 2nd Battalion of the 144th Regiment burst out of the jungle at a position between Brigade Headquarters and the 2nd 16th Battalion. This means they had effectively cut off the headquarters from the three infantry battalions to the north. They had also achieved what they had been unable to at Kokoda and Isirava. They had cut off the escape route of the Australian infantry. This was the critical moment of the entire campaign and the point where the Australians were closest to disaster. The Japanese force included an artillery observer. From their position on the track they could see into the Australian positions on Mission Ridge and message their gunners to direct effective fire onto the Australians. Brigadier Potts first became aware of the situation when Lance Corporal John Gill, who was guarding Potts, was shot by a Japanese sniper. A quick assessment of the situation told Potts they were in trouble. He was unable to get food and ammunition to his three battalions and they couldn't get their wounded out. Something needed to be done and done quickly before the Japanese established themselves. Potts ordered two attacks, one from either direction to reclaim possession of the track. Captain Claude Nye of the 2nd 14th and Captain Brenton Langridge of the 2nd 16th led the two attacks, the 2nd 14th hitting the western side and the 2nd 16th on the east. Several Japanese platoons were overrun and heavy casualties were inflicted on the Japanese. But a timely reinforcement strengthened their position and only a handful of Australians were able to break through to brigade headquarters. Many of the attackers were killed, including Nye and Langridge, and the position was still precarious despite their sacrifice. Another attempt was made to break through later in the day from the brigade headquarters side, but this was also unsuccessful and suffered heavy casualties. It was obvious the Japanese position could not be cracked. Half of the Australian casualties suffered at Afogi occurred in these attacks. Potts knew they couldn't hold Afogi with the Japanese troops holding on between his headquarters and the infantry battalions. With the coming of darkness, he did the only thing he could. He ordered brigade headquarters to fall back towards Minari. An element of the 2nd 27th attached to headquarters launched a sharp attack on the Japanese position, holding them in place while HQ withdrew and then they themselves fell back. But, as you've probably realised, this still left the main bulk of the infantry north of the Japanese position. The 2nd 27th, 2nd 14th and 2nd 16th were in a lot of trouble. They had lost contact with Brigade, but suspected that with the coming of darkness, Potts would have to withdraw. Which raised the question, what do they do? Can't head south down the track. The Japanese had devastated the previous attempt to break through. Can't stay where they are. They've got no chance of resupply. Lieutenant Colonel Caro of the 2nd 16th took overall command of all three battalions and came to the only conclusion he could. They had to break from the track and make their way south through the jungle as best they could, taking their wounded with them. For some of these troops, mostly from the 2nd 27th, who were the furthest north, this marked the beginning of one of the epics of survival from the campaign. Around 500 men made their way back. 
They emerged in small groups at Iori Baiwa after three weeks of slogging their way through unimaginable terrain. The Owen Stanleys are a challenge when there's a track to follow. Hacking through jungle, wading through rivers, climbing steep slopes while carrying your wounded mates, running out of food, your boots rotting off your feet, all while dodging an enemy trying to kill you was a monumental effort. Many didn't make it. In all, 87 Australians were killed at a fogey and 77 wounded. The Japanese lost 60 with 165 wounded. Less than half of the Australians who occupied a fogey prior to the commencement of the battle would be available for the next fight at Iorubaiwa a week later. Whichever way you look at it, a fogey was a disaster for Marubra Force. But once again, the Japanese advance had been delayed. They were a further three crucial days behind schedule and they'd suffered yet more casualties. And their supply line was getting longer. Unfortunately for Potts, this was the final nail in his coffin. Despite actually fighting a well-executed fighting withdrawal, Potts was accused of failure by those who had never seen the conditions in which he was fighting. On 10th of September, Blamey recalled Potts to Port Moresby and relieved him of his command of Marubra Force. He was replaced by Brigadier Porter. As the positions at Iori Baiwa were being prepared, the 25th Brigade under Brigadier Ether arrived. Ether took overall command of Marubra Force, leaving Porter in charge of the remnants of 21st Brigade. Iori Baiwa was only 25 miles, 40 kilometres from Port Moresby. Imisa Ridge, a few miles further south, was pretty much the last effective defensive position before Port Moresby. If Iori Baiwa was lost and the Australians forced back to Imisa Ridge, then they really would have their backs to the wall, with nowhere else to fall back to. Not having the benefit of the previous weeks of fighting the Japanese, and probably with Blamey's assessment of the Japanese being a small, easily defeated force still ringing in his ears, Ether's plan was to go on the offensive. His fresh 25th Brigade would do most of the work. He placed the battered 21st Brigade with his 3rd Battalion in a defensive position at Iori Baiwa, keeping the 2nd 25th Battalion as reserve. The other two battalions of this 25th Brigade, the 2nd 31st and 2nd 33rd, were to outflank the Japanese, each battalion on either side. There's no point giving much attention to this plan because the Japanese beat Ether to the punch. As the 2nd 31st was making its flanking move on the left on the 14th of September, they came into contact with the 2nd Battalion of the Japanese 144th Regiment the same battalion which had taken the position at a fogey. The 2nd 31st gave a good fight, but neither the Australians nor the Japanese could gain the upper hand. Ether soon realised that his plan to attack had to be scrapped, and he was now obliged to fight a defensive action. The first day of fighting at Iorubaiwa could be considered a success for Ether. The 2nd 31st was holding on to the left. The survivors of the 21st Brigade, in the centre of the position, came under attack by half of the 3rd Battalion of the 144th Regiment, but held them off, despite the Japanese artillery. By the end of the day, the Japanese commander on the spot, Kusanose, had decided his best bet was to lock the Australian left and centre in place on the following day and launch his flanking movement against the Australian right. Now, when it comes to executing a flanking movement, one of the key requirements for success is knowing exactly where the flank is. Kusanose made a bit of a blunder here. His estimate of where the flank would be was a bit short. This is because when Ether had planned his offensive fight, he had ordered the 2nd 33rd to attack the Japanese from the right. When he cancelled that order the previous day, the 2nd 33rd stopped where they were and effectively extended the Australian line by about 2 kilometres along the ridge. Instead of hitting the flank, the Japanese attacked between Ether's 3rd Battalion and the 2nd 33rd. The half battalion attack did succeed in placing itself in between Ether's 2nd 31st Battalion and the 2nd 33rd, but being basically surrounded, there wasn't much more they could do. Half of the 2nd 25th Battalion, which Ether had held in reserve, attempted a counter-attack, but the Japanese held on. The 2nd 33rd also attempted to attack, 
but in thick jungle were unable to locate exactly where the Japanese were. You get a bit of a sense by this stage of the campaign that order was starting to break down. When you think back to the first battles at Kokoda and Ishirava, sure they were hectic, but commanders from both sides were able to conduct fairly organised battles. But months later, you've got half battalions here and there fighting against remnants of other battalions. You've got the fresh 25th Brigade, but they're inexperienced in jungle fighting. To me, it seems that the long, brutal campaign to this point resembles two heavyweight boxes, 14 rounds into a 15-round bout, each with barely the strength to throw a punch, swaying on their feet, but refusing to go down. So by the morning of the 16th of September, it's all a bit of a stalemate. From the Australian perspective, the left-flanking movement was held up and going nowhere. The centre is being pounded by the Japanese artillery, so the most they can do is bunker down and hope for the best. On the right, that flanking manoeuvre technically could have moved forward but that would mean the small Japanese force between them and the centre would be freed up to move, potentially threatening the Australian right flank. For the Japanese, it was much the same thing. The flanking movement, which was holding up the Australian left flank, was itself being held up by that attack. Kusanose seemed unaware of the damage his artillery was doing in the centre, so he assumed the centre option was off the table. And his other flank attack had somehow encountered troops where there shouldn't have been any, and now they were stuck between two Australian forces. One or the other had to give. Despite the fact Blamey had put him in command to stop the withdrawing of Australian troops and his own initial desire to go on the offensive, it was Ether who broke first. Facing only a fraction of the pressure which Potts had endured at Ishirava and Ifogi, Ether saw permission to withdraw to Imata Ridge. In his request he stated, Do not consider we can hold him, the Japanese, here. Permission to withdraw was granted on the evening of the 16th of September. The standard Iorubaiwa had cost a further 49 killed and 121 wounded Australians. The Japanese lost 40 dead and 120 wounded. By the numbers alone, it would appear to be a draw. But the Australians had pulled back, leaving the Japanese in possession of the ridge. So technically, a Japanese win. But again, the Japanese had been delayed still further. They were supposed to be on this ridge back in July. It was now mid-September. They'd suffered many casualties, their supply line was stretched, and illness was starting to take its toll and they still weren't there yet. They faced another prepared defensive position on Imata Ridge. Take that, and they still had to fight their way through to Port Moresby, and then actually take the city. Also, their supply line was now potentially exposed. A determined Australian force could, in theory, now skirt around the front line, come in behind, and cut off all hope of supply and reinforcement. Having come so close, the Japanese commanders were now faced with an impossible choice. Fight on with only the vaguest hope of success, or pull back and save what they could of their force to fight on somewhere else. They knew they were basically defeated, but the shame of defeat was not something to be taken lightly. Better to die going forward than live going back. But in the end, events elsewhere made the choice for them. In early August, the Americans had landed on the island of Guadalcanal. The early fighting was brutal, and there was a chance the Japanese might hold on to the island. But by late August, early September, their hold on the island was slipping. Higher Command had decided any fresh troops and supplies which were headed towards New Guinea would need to go to Guadalcanal. Without troops and sufficient supplies, the last fading hope of success disappeared with their objective in sight. With no word in the Japanese language for retreat, the order was issued to advance to the rear. While the Japanese had been prevaricating, Ether had ordered extensive patrolling between Imata Ridge and Iori Baiwa. Then, on 20th of September, he ordered an attack on the Japanese positions. On arrival, the Australians found the positions deserted. The first phase of the fighting on New Guinea was over. What had started with the undertrained militiamen of the 39th Battalion fighting at Kokoda all the way back in June and July 
had sucked in the 2nd 14th, 2nd 16th, 2nd 27th battalions of the 21st Brigade at Ishiarava, Eora, Ifogi and Brigade Hill, and then the 2nd 25th, 2nd 31st and 2nd 33rd battalions of the 25th Brigade at Iori Baiwa. The contribution of all these men in the overall outcome of the war can never be understated. Along with the Japanese defeat at Milne Bay, this fight along the Owen Stanleys proved that the Japanese, who had been undefeated up to this point, could in fact be beaten. They denied the forces of Japan the use of the strategically important base of Port Moresby. If they had achieved their objective in the time frame they had settled on, they may have been better able to fight the Americans on Guadalcanal. Maybe even defeat them. Where would that have left the Allied war effort? We'll never know, because Maroubra Force denied Port Moresby to the Japanese. Far from running away in front of an inferior force, they had fought a series of ferocious battles to the point where, from the enemy point of view, continuing would mean their destruction. Winston Churchill, when commenting on the mindset of British generals in World War I, stated words to the effect of, when you're playing cricket and you reach out to catch the ball, you don't hold your hand out where the ball strikes your palm and take the full force. You absorb the impact by pulling your arm back, securing the catch. Between Kokoda and Imita Ridge, Maroubra force absorbed the full force of the Japanese attack, leaving them a spent force which could then be rolled back and defeated. But that is a story for another episode. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.